Legal discussion on tip today is brought to you in association with Lynch Solicitors Clan Mail on the web at lynchsolicitors.ie and at divorceinireland.com. A little later than usual today, uh, John Lynch from Lynch Solicitors with me in studio. How are you, John? I'm good, I'm good. Thank you very much. How are you after to, your holiday now? I'm just sort of, it's as if I was never away. <laughs> just like going back to school yesterday and I'm fine now. I'd say, I'm sure all the kids will agree with you this week. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, they will. At least you don't get, I was going to say you don't get homework out of here, but you you do, you do. Listen, what are you going to talk to us about today, John? Med and egg, but before I do that, uh, medical negligence, that is, before I do that, I came across something interesting there um, that kind of came across the airways or maybe the internet waves or whatever waves was the first case in the US of uh, a death which they think is in some way connected to vaping. Now I know there are a lot of people out there that are kind of curious about exactly what the impact of vaping is and you may remember that there were quite a number of class actions in the States and elsewhere and in fact they tried it in Ireland as well against the tobacco companies Mm. for cigarette smoking and vaping as I understand it now not being a vapour but um, as I understand it is, is kind of marked as an alternative way of safely smoking or coming off cigarettes, mm. uh, for whatever the other benefits there are. But that having think, nicotine without yeah, the ills of tobacco, I suppose. About yeah. The fact that you're going to, yeah. you might get cancer if you don't stop, kind of thing. And it doesn't carry the same warnings as we're all very familiar with now in terms of cancer. And I know I do know because I was listening that you did an interview there some time back on the whole vaping issue. But this is something that has come up in the States now. You know, funnily, I mean, we do follow the States quite a lot. And what I mean by that is that other than watching all all the various TV programs that come out on it, but we do follow it in terms of, if you like, allowing into the market in Europe to a certain extent things, devices, medical devices and, you know, various drugs and that. And, you know, the FTC, the federal drug, uh, FDA actually, sorry, uh, the federal drug agency in, in the UK, in the US has an equivalent in Europe and Britain and Ireland that, if you like, passes various things that come onto the market. And I remember with the when we were investigating the whole debacle with the debris hips, we were looking at somebody actually put me on to a programme that was on BBC about the whole area of allowing products into the market. And in that case, we were looking at the debris product, but it also instanced other types of products that were being put onto the market and the level of supervision that was involved in them. And I remember quite quite starkly looking at one particular device which was supposed to be, well, sorry, wasn't supposed to be, it was marketed as a pacemaker and it was put onto the market. And the whole question, of course, from a legal perspective is is the level of supervision you know, checking and all that that goes into the whole area before you put something onto the market and make it available to the general public. And in that particular one, I remember clearly that, you know, there was this device that was 
very much put onto the market on, off the back of another device that was similar to it, but not checked. And of course, one individual one morning woke up and he was almost electrocuted with the Good device God. for whatever reason, you know. But anyway, that was a kind of a stark example of it. But there are different mechanisms for putting things on the market. And in the US, as I understand it, you have a fast track procedure. And the, now this actually, <clears throat> as I understand it, vaping in the US didn't even go into the fast track procedure. I think it was put in under the umbrella of being beneficial to the public at large by reason of the fact that it would assist people in coming off uh, nicotine or cigarettes. And therefore, you see, when you come in under the standards like that and you're fast tracked, you're then basically put onto the market uh, the, the particular device or in this in device in this case, mm. is put onto the market without the usual text that you should have before you put it on the market. I mean, it's a bit like the scenario. Do you remember the narcolepsy scandal in Ireland? For sure, yeah. And I mean, in that particular case, you had the state overwriting, if you like, the lack of of checking that was done or the lack of um, analysis that was done on the product that was put on the market and getting basically giving an indemnity to the company that sold them the drug because the urgency of the situation was such that if you like the public public interest, the argument is that the public interest kind of overrode the principle of very detailed checking. And I mean, the issue in, in with this now is that somebody has died as a result of it in the States mm. and they're now the centre of disease control and prevention in the States mm. have got involved and they're now talking about the fact that since the start of this year to June, they have something like 200 cases, which they now need to investigate. And then the whole issue of how many cases are out there that aren't being reported and how many cases out there might be you know, reported but not reported under the heading of vaping and that. So mm -hmm. it raises a very interesting I question. would imagine, though, it would be very complex because on the programme yesterday we were speaking about COPD. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. It's yeah. that pulmonary yes, difficulties yes, that some yes. people have. But, I mean, if you were predisposed to having something with your lungs and you did any kind of vaping, mm. it would aggravate it in yeah. some way, I presume. Yeah. So it would be very hard to, to sell on. that in court, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, you see... But you see, there therein lies the issue, you see, because if you're looking, I mean, I was going to, you know, talk this morning about the, in the general, in general, about the area of medical negligence. Yeah. And, like, negligence starts with, be it medical negligence, product liability, any kind of liability under the heading of negligence kind of starts with a kind of a duty of care and establishing what that duty of care is. So, you know, when you start, you, your very first question is, is there a liability here? But is there a duty here? Does somebody have a duty, i.e. in this case, the manufacturing industry or the supplier or whoever puts this onto the market? Do they have a duty when they put it onto the market? And if they do have a duty, I mean, by and large, most people will argue, of course, you have some duty or some level of duty. But the question is, what level of duty are you talking about? And therein lies the kind of nub of trying to, answered the question that you've just posed i.e. what if somebody had a predisposition say to lung disorders, mm. pulmonary disorders or whatever, where do they fit into the mix 
And then if you throw in the other question, as in <clears throat> what about the issue of, and again, I'm sure your listeners know I have a particular penchant, if that's the right word, uh, for their Latin, but there's the principle of valenti non fit in urea, which is that where you come voluntarily to something, you can't complain of injury. So... Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So that's an interesting one because that kind of finds its way into the whole area of, um, for example, the most common example of that would be, let's say, you decide you're going to go paintballing. Uh, Is it called paintballing? It is, yeah. Or you're going to go go go-karting or you're going to go and take on some kind of activity like, say, horse riding, for example, and... Interestingly enough, there was a recent case that I was reading um, because, I mean, down the years, we're in horse territory around Mm -hmm. here. And down the years, on many an occasion, I've been asked about accidents that happen in the context of horses and animals. And the whole issue of Valenti comes into it. Is that like personal responsibility? Yeah, yeah to some basically, degree? exactly, yes. exactly. Yeah. That's that's the non-Latin version of it, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> I like the Valentian. Yeah, uh, well, I'm from a, a, a council house in Cashel, you see. There was do, very little Latin around Latin. there. Did you not do Latin in school? Listen, we've I struggled th- with English. I thought we all did Latin in school. But anyway, um, I didn't do Greek, but I did do Latin. Yeah. But... That particular principle like, found its way into all the litigation on the cigarettes. Do you remember, I remember before, I think before I qualified, maybe before I qualified, I remember sitting watching a, a programme on, uh, it was good old Gay Byrne on the Late Late Show, interviewing a solicitor. Uh, who shall remain nameless mainly because I don't want to be publicised. <laughs> but he was being interviewed because he was taking what he was terming a class action against the tobacco companies. And basically what he was doing, and this was maybe 20 years ago, and the, the whole thing was that it was going to be a case uh, taken by multiple defend- plaintiffs or people who take cases by multiple people in Ireland, many people in Ireland were going to, so we don't have such a thing as, you know, class as a class action, yeah. action but you can have we've we've had class type actions yeah. in Ireland. You've done that with the hips haven't we, you? Exactly, yeah. yeah, where one judge will be nominated to manage them and literally you have multiple cases, but mm. that that started, well it didn't start, it, it was there with the cigarette cases, it was there with the Army Jeffins cases, mm. it was there with the debris hip cases, it's there with the uh, cancer misdiagnosis cases. So, you know, there's multiple, pla- mm. multiple plaintiffs, if you know what I mean. But the whole, to go back to the principle, which is the Valentin on Fisionuria principle or personal responsibility, as you call it, uh, that found its way into the cigarette defence argument, if you know what I mean. So, in other words, the cigarette company were saying, well, wait a minute here, like, you take on, you you start smoking, uh, there's all this advertising, there's all these packages, there's all these warnings. How can you turn around then and tell us that... We didn't know. That, that you yeah. didn't know yeah. and that we have a duty of care. Of course we have a duty of care, but we've discharged it. We've told you that it can have a negative effect. A little bit like when you're looking... Now, by the way, the the just to maybe not 
make it as straightforward as that. You also have the complication as to at what point do you have enough knowledge to make an informed decision right. on whether or not it is or is not. And that brings you full circle now right back to what we're talking about, which is the whole vaping scenario. Because at what point are you, is the, if you like, the vaping company going to be able to turn around and say, well, now, Fran, you knew that vaping was not good for you. You knew you had an issue with your, your breathing, etc. And you knew and ought to have known. And that, that raises the very interesting question that when you start looking at do you have a case or do you not have a case, is there a duty, is there not a duty, then the whole area of knowledge kicks in then. So you've got Valenti and then you've got knowledge. And the the, the mm. other really interesting uh, thing that came up in those types of cases, and it kind of really resonated with me yesterday when I was listening to, or sorry, when I was reading the case, you know the, is it the Ruth Morrissey case, the one that went to the High Court and she got damaged and now it's gone to the Supreme Court? But I was reading the, excuse me, I was reading the judgment of the Supreme Court because Ruth, that particular case is really fascinating because, and it's it's fascinating for a number legally, I mean legally fascinating, mm. obviously there's a huge amount of human elements to course, it that yes. are not as fascinating if you know what I mean, but mm. the interesting thing about that case is that that case has frog leaped the Court of Appeal and gone straight to the Supreme Court. And the reason that the Supreme Court, normally the Supreme Court won't hear cases unless they are of paramount or very high level importance to the whole system in trying to determine whether or not there is a point that might affect numerous other cases right. and therefore they'll hear it because, they, you know, in other words, it's kind of top of the range. And the issue that came up with the cigarette cases was the issue of the statute of limitations. In other words, were they out of time and the whole knowledge principle, mm. you know what I mean? Back to your, uh, when you were saying to me, well, you know, I know I have a problem with my lungs and I go out and I start vaping. Mm. How can I complain about it? Well, the question of knowledge kicks in there. But in the Morrissey case, like the real crux of that case and the reason that that case is going to the Supreme Court or the reason that they've taken mm. it on in the Supreme Court and allowed it to jump past the Court of yeah. Appeal is that they're saying that the absolute knowledge test is the one that they need to see yes. whether or not go that's going to When apply. they became aware. Yeah. yeah, but the level of awareness, you know. Uh, as well. And, and that just brings up, I'm not sure if you heard this morning about the Johnson & Johnson decision yes. in, in the States as yes. well um, yes. for, for the opiates. Yes. Uh, the, yes. Is that how you pronounce that? Opiates, yeah, opiates. is it? Um, opiates, opiates, no. Opiates, is yeah. it? Um, 400,000 people dead since yeah. 1999, yeah. I think, yeah. um, because of yeah. overdosing. Yes. But again, you have the principle there. They know that these things are dangerous. But you see, that that really, like the, when you're looking at that whole area, and I mean, the funny thing, not funny thing, but the thing about law and what makes law so fascinating is trying to establish where the balance lies in terms of the, the, the individual, the mm. punter, who's out there having his vape or has taken the drug or has done whatever, and the 
the the the come the right to be protected. You know the kind of paternal right to be protected. Yes. I mean, I was reading, I was doing uh, actually a booklet. that we do these booklets for clients? I am calling it a booklet because it's not as big as a book and it's not as small as a, a leaflet. Yes. Well, it's bigger than a pamphlet now, I have to say. <laughs> but the the question, you've often asked me the question, you know, about, you know, taking on cases and, uh, you know, dodgy cases and would you take it on and, you know, and mm. clients of all, people have often said to me, you know, how do you take, you know, how as a solicitor do you take on a case which you know you're going to lose and why would you take on a case where you know somebody's guilty, etc.? And the, what what makes law quite interesting is how you strike the balance between the individual rights the, of two individuals, if you like, the per, like in either the cigarette company and the rights of the cigarette company to defend themselves against people making claims in the scenario you're talking about, or the right of the individual to do right. something and then the overall public policy right you know what's you know is you add in that ter- third little element so like a little mix there where does the balance lie and how do you find the balance so if you're looking at a situation where at the moment vaping is very much up in the air no pun intended mm. but it is very much up in the air as to and despite you know the fact that somebody has died from it doesn't prove the case, if you, if you know what I mean, against or for the vaping. Right. So the, the issue now that seems to have kind of got traction in the US is the whole knowledge train is beginning to move out of the station and there's now, they're now starting to check to see, you know, is it dangerous or is it not? So when you were talking about your, your chap with his lung problem vaping, coming off the fags, trying to save himself from the fags mm. and then going on to vaping in the knowledge that this is supposed to help him and isn't dangerous. Now, the question there is a bit like the cigarette companies, and I'm not suggesting that uh, they, I, I, I understand, but I'm, I mm. can't say that categorically, that quite a lot of the vaping companies are in fact cigarette companies as well. They started to buy them up, yeah. Yeah, they started to buy yeah. them up, which which probably from their point of view but are you saying that coming down the line now we can expect more of these cases is that I'm saying coming down the line you can now expect the type of testing that should have been done before vaping was put on the market will now become the 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 norm right if it matters to you it matters to us call tip today on 1-800-938-007 John Lynch is still with me you're going to look at some more negligence medical uh, negligence John yeah basically what what when you're looking at the area of med- medical negligence you're asking the question what is it and you know we were talking about the duty of care and what exactly is that and the principles that you apply one of the ones that that I think I was actually doing a procedure, and that's what they call it, there last Friday. And I was sitting, I gowned up, came sitting there waiting for the consultant. I won't, it wasn't around here, but sitting waiting for the consultant. And I was curious because they ask you the question. Normally when they ask you the question, who, what's your name, what's your address, and what's your profession, they ask you what's your job or whatever. When you put down solicitor, they're usually a little bit more careful in the way they apply I'll their bet they are. <laughs> I mean, it, it reminds me of the time when I brought down the... Uh, the, I was bringing down some material to read and I didn't realise what I grabbed off the table as I was going down to the doctor and uh, I had a, I had a, an article on medical negligence 
And I didn't realise it. I, I quite honestly didn't realise that was. I thought I'd be waiting, you see, so I said I'd do a bit of reading. Mm. And, uh, of course, uh, when I was talking to the consultant, he was talking about my knee, because I, as you know, do a bit of cycling, and I was having a bit of trouble with the knee. <laughs> and I went down to get it checked out, scoped and whatever, and... Uh, he was chatting away, chatting away, and I, I had the book just under my arm or something, and I took it out and put it on the table and didn't realise that I had faced it to him. <laughs> and he changed from, well, it's a fairly standard procedure and it's only a matter of going in and scoping it out, etc. to, well, actually, there are risks in this procedure. <laughs> he, had, he had me booked in before he read the article, I'll bet you before he, he saw it, and then, which I thought was interesting. So what happened then? You were, you were waiting for... I was for sitting it. there. Yeah. I was sitting there, and, I'm, and this is the second time I've had to do something uh, a procedure we call it and I was sitting there and uh, the nurse came in and said oh this consultant will be in in a minute and when he comes in he'll go through the consent with you he came in he looked at me and said okay uh, fine here you are can you sign that for me please and I said what is it he says it's a consent form I said and what what's in it and he said ah it's just grand just sign it so I trusted the man I signed it but I didn't get any indication of what the risks were in the particular procedure that I was doing. I got no explanation. I got two minutes to to read it. Uh, I wouldn't. I don't think, based on the speed with which he wanted to get it done, that I would have had an opportunity to read it. And it brings me in mind of another procedure that I had 12 months ago when I was on the trolley, having been anaesthetised, when the consultant came out with the form and got me to say, sign there. After uh, you getting your injection, yeah, like to, after to go to sleep. the anaesthetic. But I mean, wow. the interesting thing about it is that, the, you know, you you can have different levels of, you know, you can have diagnosis, a misdiagnosis can be the basis for a medical mm. negligence action if there's some negligence in it. But, but if there is an issue there, there's your action. I mean, you oh, didn't yeah. give me time to read the... Yeah, exactly. Well, well, but it just comes back to the question you asked. I mean, I mean, you know, you've got treatment, diagnosis, treatment are the areas, and then consent, you know, knowledge, mm. disclosure, giving you all the information. But that does come back to the question that you asked earlier. I'm a solicitor. Surely I should have stopped him and said, and said hold on, I need here, to read wait this. Wait a minute here. Wait a yeah. minute here. You're supposed to tell me what the risks are here and before I sign this. So you, you, it begs the question, could you, if you were defending, if something went wrong in either of those two procedures, could the defendant, as in whoever's going to deal with the case, let's say I did take a case, um, could they make the argument, well, wait a minute here, he's a solicitor. Why didn't he stop? Why didn't he whatever? Which brings me to the case. I remember it's kind of the seminal case on the whole area of consent because what I thought to myself was there aren't too many. I have had two cases where the issue of consent was an issue in the cases and in both cases we settled the case so it didn't go to hearing and in both cases they were defending it on the basis of saying well no there was sufficient uh, warnings and there was sufficient mm. information given to you etc etc but so I don't know what you wouldn't know how it would run when it ran into court but I mean the biggest case on it is on that very question you know what does informed consent mean and to what extent should you inform somebody because in an awful lot like in one of the prior the case prior to that a guy was going in to do a dental treatment 
and there was a very, very, very small risk that he would get continuous pain as a result of the particular procedure, which he did get, but he hadn't been warned about it. And the Supreme Court held, no, it wasn't a matter for the the consultant to say, well, look, here's a list of 50 potential, really potential a consequence that can things that can happen, mm. but there's a couple of really, really very far out ones, and I don't need to tell him about those kind of thing, which is w- what the question was. You know, is it a matter for the doctor to decide to what extent he should warn you, or is it a matter for mm. the patient to determine it's how much knowledge? But the one word that you used earlier on when you spoke about your decision to just sign this was that you trusted. Correct. Him. Correct. So the word trust. Correct. Was there. And the whole the whole issue, and I think that's the cornerstone, quite very much the cornerstone of medical negligence is that, and that's why to a certain extent it can be quite difficult at times to decide whether there is or is not a case because you will, a lot of people, and it becomes very relevant when you're talking about the time it takes to take a case, like let's say it's five years on from the operation, mm. you're still having problems and are you out of time? And this is this has kind of exercised the courts quite f- frequently over the last number of years and very recently has been kind of, to a certain extent, clarified by the Supreme Court. But, the, but you've put your finger on it because the question often that arises is that if I'm there, go in, do something, from in in the context of somebody that I trust, and by the way, it apply it doesn't apply just to doctors. Mm, mm. It applies to solicitors. It applies to accountants. It applies to anybody that you trust. And I mean, you know, our whole mm. society is based on trust to a certain extent. You trust somebody to do the job. So the question and the difficulty with knowledge and when when are you out of time to take a case is that if you go along trusting that everything is okay then under those circumstances it isn't until such time as you've reason to question that trust that the whole area of how mm. long does it take and when should you It's very interesting is, but there's so many things that can go wrong for all sorts of reasons where you know where medical intervention is concerned I mean just for example people can be put under and the anaesthetic just affects them badly and they, they can pass away, you know? Yeah. But but they might have been grand. Correct. Uh, you know? Correct. So, so and many things can go. And you see, the other issue with that is that you, you kind of have a David and Goliath scenario because if you take a situation that um, somebody, you know, something happens which, you know, oughtn't have happened, but you don't know whether it oughtn't have happened because it might have happened anyway for some underlying reason or whatever. I mean, it's just, it's, I find the whole area interesting now because, and I'll give you an example of it, because in my own case, like, as you know, I had a stroke and when I had the stroke, because I've had the stroke, I've been said, well, you need to go on this, you need to do this, you need to do that. And it's all precautionary it's not necessarily required but it's precautionary yes so i have there was they couldn't find the reason for the stroke etc so now i have a monitor that monitors my heart to make sure this and then i'm on thinners and i'm on this this and this and i remember at one stage and only after now it's a year almost or coming up to a year and would you believe it was only last night that I actually opened the book and started looking up what these drugs were for and that might sound 
daft, but you're kind of processing, yeah. you're dealing with the situation and you get to a point where you suddenly say, well, wait a minute here, what am I taking? Because again, back to the point that you made, you're trusting. Trusting, of course. Yeah. You're trusting people to say, well, so in, in that particular instance, you're looking at the drug and you're going, Okay, well, why do why do I need that? And in in my particular in, instance, I I I asked for a referral to a, another for not for a second opinion that I doubted the first opinion, mm. but just for another yeah, view sure. of it. Yeah, and it was like it was like I don't go into two different solicitors sometimes because I've dealt with solicitors as well and different styles. Was it totally different? Well, it was it was much more pragmatic. When I went to the second guy, he went, "You don't need that drug." That one we can bring down the dose on, and that one's okay. You can stay on that one, right. and don't worry about not doing this, and don't worry about. And not that, doing that begs don't the worry. question: Are some consultants or some doctors too careful now, almost? Well, are they overly cautious? O- overly cautious. Overly yeah. cautious. You know, one might ask: Would you blame them Be- for because being of overly cautious? Yeah. And yeah. to a certain extent, that's. Somebody wants to know, John, when the clock is stopped on an incident, how long does that clock stay stopped for? Is that a legal sort of premise? Is it that well, if you look at it, when you know they talk about the clock stopping, what happens here is that the clock will start at a certain point in time rather than stopping, if you know what I mean. Like, so let's say you have an operation. Let's say you go through the operation and let's say something goes wrong. The question that happen- arises there is when does the clock start? In other words, you have two years from the date of the operation or two years from the date in which you knew that there was something wrong with the operation hmm. within which to do something. So if you like, the, it's, the question, it's a question of the clock starting. So the clock, you don't have a clock ticking until you hit a certain point. So let's say, take the standard one, mm. road traffic accident, the clock starts when the crash happens. Right. And it starts to tick, 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 tick. And then two years later, if it's a personal injury, it, it stops after two years. And when it stops, it stops. End of story. You've, you've no... Right. But there is the a caveat there that if you didn't know something there was is wrong... A caveat. There is a yeah. caveat that in... And, for example, the clock for other types of cases could be six years. For breach of contract could be six years. Right. But the caveat, as you say, or the net safety net, depending on which side you're on, is the fact that if you didn't know, uh, then the clock doesn't start right. until you, you knew or ought to have known and that's the important that's one the, that's the it's interesting one, just, that's the sting in the tail so you've got the oh safety my. net with the potential net possibly opening because <laughs> you ought to have known alright John All right. thanks very much indeed always a pleasure thanks uh, that's John Lynch from Lynch Solicitors in Clan alright will you let me take a break John and uh, we'll be back in a moment